morning. Talk yes. Radio 930 WTAD. Two guests in studio. One will do most of the talking. Stephen Spears. Good morning, Stephen Spears from Cornerstone. Good morning. And one will wish he was doing all the talking, but we're only going to let him talk a little bit, and that's Drew Quintero from Cornerstone. Hi, Mary. Hi, Drew. Anything you want to get off your chest right away? No, I actually have really nothing to say today, so we're going to leave this all up to you and Steven. Isn't that great? He gets paid anyway. <laughs> Isn't it nice? Ah, oh, he's like the that. wonderful. Well, your microphone's going off so you can... Belch, burp, <laughs> breathe heavily, whatever you want to do. Can you move if, over a little further? Yeah. <laughs> I'll move over on the other side of the table if you're going to kind of do this stuff. I'll hold this book here just okay. in case. Okay. So, Stephen Spears, we're being watched and and monitored, but... Oh, we're being watched? By Drew. Ooh. Okay. So, Cornerstone um, has unique counseling services for people uh, from, really, from the womb to the tomb. Uh, you know, they've got programs for uh, for young parents and people with young children. They've got programs for teenagers, uh, young adults, married couples, people who are struggling with transitions in life. So, Stephen Spears, what are we going to talk about today? What topic do you bring to the Mary Griffith Show? I bring the topic of how the environment impacts the parents and the parents impacts the child's environment. Okay, elaborate. Okay. Well, first, first I want to read this quote because this okay, is one this is, it was really impactful for me. And this is from Andrew Feldman. He says, children swim in their parents' unconscious life like fish in the sea. Ah. It's very profound. Very profound. So children know when something's wrong. Well, it, it's that and it's also that when, you know, because in today's modern world, we're always 100 miles an hour, foot to the floor. We're, we're a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress. And we often forget, as a parent myself, we bring that home, you know, and, you know, when we talk about nature and, and nurture, we're looking at the nurture part of this, that sometimes inadvertently, even without us knowing it, we impact our child's regulation. We impact their anxiety. We impact their functioning to a great extent because we're in the home with them so often. So that has an impact and interplay that, you know, when we look at our kids and we think, well, you know, I just wish they behave and all these wonderful things. But sometimes we have to take that step back and say, how am I impacting my child? What what am I bringing unconsciously to this table that may have an impact on my child that moves them in the wrong direction and so on and so forth? Well, the interesting aspect of that is unconsciously. So if I'm not really aware of it, then I have to become self-aware as a parent that when I step into the home, even though I think I've had time to decompress, maybe on the two-minute commute from the office to the front door here in Quincy, <laughs> or a 20-minute commute in some rural areas, or maybe longer, but we think we have put the cares of the workplace behind us, and we're ready to walk into the home, kiss the little woman, say, what's for honey? What's for supper, honey? Where's my <laughs> martini? Let our 2.3 adorable children bounce on yeah. our knee for a while. That doesn't often happen. No, it doesn't happen. And, and the thing I want to point out that this is a non-judgmental approach on parents, because I'm a parent myself. But we do have that process where we, we think exactly what you said. But then we get home, and how much of that is still there? You know, because children pick up on that through neuroception and, and become dysregulated or regulated, whichever the case may be. Um, is that enough time for us to really touch in and say, where am I at right now? Am I still having a lot of anxiety from work? Am I really moved into what we call safe and social? Am I calm? What am I transmitting? You know, if I come home, what's my tone of voice? I'm agitated from work. And I, and I was thinking about this for a few weeks, given what I do. A lot of times 
we sit with people in various degrees of dysregulation and hurt and pain. How much am I bringing home? You know, unconsciously, how much is still am I presenting to my home when I get there? And I got to have about a 20-minute or so drive home. And when I came to the door one day, I said, where am I at right now? What am I feeling? What's going on? And I realized I had an elevated sense of anxiety because I was still processing a case I had just done. So I needed to take a minute and regulate myself and, you know, touch base with myself and see where I was at before I entered the home because that can have an impact. Very much so. Also, when the uh, most times nowadays, it's two breadwinners in the family. Mm -hmm. Very rarely is someone home alone, at least not for a whole career. Uh, You may take a few years off to be with the children, but most people have two working incomes in the home. And so not only where am I, but where is my spouse or partner? What kind of day have they been having? Uh, I grew up in the traditional daddy goes to work, mommy stays home house. And I remember several times my mother saying, thank God you're here. These kids are your responsibility for at least an hour. I must take a break. (laughs) So no matter what worries or cares daddy had, when he came home, he was thrust right into caregiving mode when maybe all he wanted to do was have his wife hand him the martini, put his slippers, you know, the pipe and say, wait till your Chateaubriand is done, honey. It'll just be a moment. So. Children are picking up on the uh, anxiety or good vibrations being set off by both parents. No matter what kind of um, environment those parents are coming from, they're transferring some of that environment into the home environment. Likewise, children may be coming from a play area or a friend's house and may be transmitting or from school and may be transmitting some of those things. So. This is a really interesting topic because we're going to get some, I hope, some practical pointers uh, on how to deal with that. Because I know one of the most important things they say is, you know, talk to your spouse. How was your day, honey? Unfortunately, most of the time, the answer to that is, or I don't want to get into it. Yeah. Yeah, they push it. Which is fine with me because to tell you the truth, I don't really want to get into it either. Uh, There's a part of me that says, I really don't care how your day was. I care how you are. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I I can't really solve any of the problems, nor can you solve mine that happened at the workplace. And that, I think, is one of the frustrations. Married couples are told that they're this team and they're going to solve all these problems together and they're going to be in it for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. But then they find that all these outside forces are acting on each of them individually. And they don't work at the same place most of the time, so the forces are nothing that the other one can control. Or say, oh, well, our boss, now just the, here's how you deal with him, because it's not. You don't know that boss. You don't know how to deal with him. Right. So, it's like working with Drew. You just don't know how to deal with yeah, the Yeah, you just don't know days. how to deal with it. Um, okay. And, and that's true. And the, the other thing I'd like to add to that is now we have people who work from home. So that interaction with their job, when it's stressful, there's anxiety, the boss is on the call, the Zoom call, I need to get this done, 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 done. It's in the home. So it's not left at work. or part. It's not diminished. It is actually in the home. So all that gets spread throughout the house. Now, when we talk about <clears throat> excuse me, practical tips to address this, the, the biggest one is self-care. And identifying which state of regulation you're in. Talk about that regulation, because that's like a Daniel Tiger neighborhood. When I get so mad that I want to roar, I take a deep breath and count to four. Uh, Talk about regulation, because I think that's a vocabulary word that we don't have in our little 
repertoire, maybe Steven Spears. And, and that's probably true. So let's let's address the regulation. Regulation seem, for me is how I present this is what state are you in? We have uh, safe and social, which is the one where you want to be in. Everything's functioning, your prefrontal cortex. You can make good decisions. You're calm. Then you move into your sympathetic nervous system. Now, this is fight or flight. This is anger. This is irritability. This is anxiety. All those things where that live, where that lives. So when we, when I say dysregulated, I mean you're in fight or flight. You're in the sympathetic part of your nervous system. How we move that up into that safe and social is we have to impact the vagal nerve, and we do that. We can do that through breathing. That's a big one because that's called pumping the vagal brake, the big deep breaths. And when you do that, oftentimes you can feel that change in your body. You can actually feel that calmness come over you. And what you're doing is you're moving from one part of the, the from the sympathetic part of your nervous system into ventral vagal. Okay, those are the big words. All right. Essentially, what you're doing is you're regulating yourself. Now, there's other ways to do it. it doesn't always have to be breathing. Um, humor is a great regulator. Um, walking, exercise, those things like that are great regulators. And it's kind of an art form. You find different ways that help you calm. Let's put it that way, help you calm. Um, it can be listening to white noise. It can be um, staring out the window and watch it, watch it rain or the wind blow. This can be oh, anything. great day today. Is, Perfect day for that. However, if that's your jam. when yeah. you're a news reporter and you look out the window, then your top news story is power lines are down all over the city. It's dangerous. Tree limbs are down. So, you know, this may be calming. And that's another thing that's really interesting. The very same thing can have a calming or a non-calming effect. Mm -hmm. If I don't have to go out today and I just want to watch the pretty trees shake in the breeze, it's kind of very placid mm -hmm. here in the safety and warmth of the WTAD studio. But since I am going to have to go out in it later, I don't find anything too comforting about that. But exactly. some people may. The sound of rain is very comforting until you're out in it for more than two hours and your temperature drops, you know. <laughs> so, again, uh, there, a little bit can go a long way. People can perceive mm -hmm. the same thing. The sound of running water is fine unless it's in your basement. Then exactly. it's not very calm. Then that's dysregulation. <laughs> that's dysregulation. You're moving down. You're dysregulated. Now you've got to get the plumber. You've got to stop the rain. You've got to stop the water. Yep. But I, I like that you're talking about ways that, that we have to know about our regulation systems. I was watching... Uh, probably CBS this morning. It might have been a little bit of 60 Minutes. I can't tell. I really enjoy news programs. And they had a, a group of young, mostly black, but young men, and they were teaching them how to change their behaviors. And they were saying that it takes 18 to 24 months just to get them from fright and flight. In other words, they've been, their life has been so horrible up to the time they're 18 or whatever Mm -hmm. that getting them back to a state of just zero, you know, just to the to the calm state, mm -hmm. uh, can take 18 to 24 months, and then another possible one year to two years to then teach them how to bring themselves back up out of that dysregulated state. Mm -hmm. That just goes to show when we get too far gone, the longer we stray from regulation, the the longer it will take us to get back in a regulated state. Yeah, because then that becomes the safe part of it. It, it's, it feels unsafe to step out of that because we're comfortable with that. It's our, just kind of our working scheme at the moment. I'm familiar with this regulation. I'm comfortable with that. I don't like it. But if I move into something else, then that becomes, oh, that's a little different. I'm a little, I'm a little scared of that. So some people, it, it can be a little daunting. Um, but in the environment of the home, like with your kiddos and stuff, 
being self-aware of your other of state of regulation and self-care uh, is absolutely important because when we bring that home, because our children's nervous systems are still developing, they're still learning how to self-regulate. We need to co-regulate. So if we're calm, um, if, if, we've, if we accept, okay, work is this, I've done my breathing, I've done things I need to self-care before I get home and I relax, when our children become dysregulated, if we're calm, if we're in that safe and social part of our nervous system, we have a better chance of helping them come to that safe and social position and it, practice that. Because the more we practice it, we're actually affecting the brain and synapses in the brain to become stronger, that that becomes easier for them. So what we're doing is we're training our kids for the future to be, okay, I'm in a stressful situation. I can manage this. I don't need to become extremely dysregulated. I can accept what's going on, and I can bring myself back to safe and social. So that's what we're practicing when we're in the home with our kids. We're helping them to learn how to regulate through co-regulation, if that makes sense. Could you train your children, since I don't have any, can you train your children like you know, you know you're going to be a little bit stressed when you walk in the front door. You don't know exactly what you're walking into. You don't mm -hmm. know what kind of day your spouse has had or whether they're even home yet what kind of note you're going to get from the babysitter. You don't know what kind of mood the kids are going to be in. Can you train your children, although they want to run towards you and they're happy to see you? The other thing kids love to do, at least I remember, is, Daddy, Daddy, Billy hit me. Daddy, Daddy, I need a dollar for my field trip tomorrow. Daddy, you know, whatever's on their mind, because they're so egocentric, is the most important thing. Is there a method where you can... Uh, let your kids, you know, greet you at the door in that loving way because they haven't seen you and they're happy to see you, but then not bombard you because they're often competing with their their siblings for your attention. Mm -hmm. um, just ideas there. I mean, boundaries is a great great thing to teach your kids, right? Because boundaries keep us mentally health, healthy, right? Keep us safe. In those moments, you 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 teach your kids, you work with your children, and say, okay, I'm I'm coming home. You know, I'm coming home. I need just a few minutes. I need to collect myself and gather myself. And that's a conversation. You sit down and you explain that. You have that conversation, right? Because you're doing that conversation when they're not in that heightened state, right? They're not vying for attention, right? So when you do that in it, when they're not, when they're in safe and social, you're in the prefrontal cortex is where we make good decisions and understand things. Um, you've got a really good shot of helping them understand what you're going through. And that's great practice because then that teaches the children, hey, these are boundaries. That I know to set boundaries. I should set boundaries at different times. That can becomes very important later in life. And so that's just some ideas there. Then that helps children understand, one, what you're going through, right? Two, it is also a bonding moment. You're sitting down. You're conversing with your children. You're educating them. So it's a wonderful bonding moment to help them understand what you're going through. And it helps them learn to share. These are my feelings when I get home. It's really hard. I need to kind of get my space. So you're teaching them to communicate feeling as well. So that, it's a great opportunity to work with your kids. So I want to take off my coat, grab my beer, and, <laughs> and then I'll have time for you children. <laughs> it, it, is, um, it is interesting because if we can learn some of these tactics, especially like the take a deep breath, this has been around. We've been talking about take a deep breath ever since probably man invented fire and had to step back and say, wow, what happened there? I got burned. Um, take a deep breath. You mentioned there is a scientific purpose behind it. It mm -hmm. really does work. What are some of the other things you mentioned? Um, you know, that take a deep breath is a really good one. 
what are some other things we can do to bring us back to that safe space? Well, we often talk about grounding techniques and different things. And in when I, in sessions when I give information like that, I, I really try to find what, what the natural strength of the client is. What has been working that they haven't really maybe recognized in that moment? And it can be a lot of things. Um, some pe- Music. You know, putting the headphones on, listening to Mozart or Metallica, whichever the case may be for you. Um, music's a great one. Uh, just moving. Moving. The exercise component. The exercise component, just going for a walk, you know, um, processing a lot of that stuff. And part of that exercise is because you are deeper breathing when you're exercising because mm-hmm. your oxygen needs. So you're kind of forcing yourself to take a deep breath, but yeah. you're also motivating the movement and mm-hmm. clearing your head. Is there really such a thing as clearing your head? Because sometimes at night when I try to go to sleep, I'll fall asleep right away. And other times I can't turn off my thinking mm-hmm. well there's some early early research on how the impact the impact of fight or flight sympathetic nervous system activation impacts sleep and, and nightmares at times now again this is very early research but it's it's the thinking that when you go to sleep if you're not in that safe and social if you're not in that ventral part of your nervous system you're sympathetic so you're still in fight or flight you're still in that mode where things haven't switched, you haven't moved up to allow the brain to function and process all these things as it needs to. So you're kind of you're kind of in that that sympathetic nervous system still. So the the thoughts are just racing. And sense. how do you get children? I mean, that's why it's very important to have bedtime routine. Um, and when does bedtime routine stop? Because when you're a teenager, you don't want your parents to say it's time to go to beddy bye mm-hmm. and tuck you in with your little stuffy. So, you know, at what point in time, you can tell I've never had kids, but there there comes a time when um, that bedtime routine is harder to enforce. Mm-hmm. And is bedtime routine critically important for um, better functioning of sleep and better functioning the next day for children, especially teenagers? Well, I just want to point out, I'm still sleeping with my snuffy fluffy, okay? So... <laughs> I'm so not giving, I'm not giving that up for anybody. I, I still have my I still have my stuffy. <laughs> um but yeah, even as you get older, sleep is still important. We know that sleep is important and for teenagers, sleep is very important because the the brain's still developing. The whole body is still developing, you know, go through growth spurts and all that. So that bed right bedtime routine is still very important. You you know, at five, we're saying go to bed at this time, go to bed at this time. And, and it may be flexible as you get older and become a teen, but that bedtime routine is still very important. You know, we have a lot of people with electronics struggling with sleep, and we know that sleep, when before we, we want to be calm, we want our environment to be calm, where if we're using a lot of electronics, then that can hinder a lot of that process. So the sleep routine is still very important. Important. The number of hours you're sleeping is still very important. So it's a good thing to get into a habit with the kiddos and and make sure that continues into the teens. Now, teens are going to be teens, and, hey, can I stay up till midnight or 1 o'clock on Friday and play with my friends? You know, that's a parent's decision. But They can yeah. bounce back from that a lot better, but some of them have that handheld device, and they'll be on that thing at 1 and 2 o'clock in the morning and just the screen brightness. Well, really, and the same is true for adults. See, some of the problem is um, the parents themselves have gotten over some of these teenage things. And so it's very difficult to enforce what is best for your teenager when you're doing things that aren't good for you. (laughs) And 
How do you deal with that as a therapist? Um, well, that's just a process of, of discussing that with a parent. If the parent's like, well, I'm, I'm struggling with sleep and my kids are struggling with sleep. Okay, you find the common denominator. What is that? Well, we're all in our electronics. Okay, does that have an impact? You feel that has an impact. What changed? What was it like before those electronics? Were things common? Well, nobody can remember what it was like. Before I, I can't, so that's a little different for me because I remember growing up. I didn't. My electronic was, you know, I get up in the morning, turn stuck TV on. Reading a book with a flashlight underneath the covers. There's I mean, your electronic. We all did something. Mm-hmm. Or I remember when I used to have a television set in my room, and I was supposed to have it off, but I would get up and watch all-star wrestling or something, you know, at 1030 at night and think my parents would never know that that was going on. So the bottom line is when we're dealing with our children, it all starts with us. Mm -hmm. We have to be in a good space in order for our children to be in a good space. If we're not in a good space, we can't help them get to that good space. Yeah, essentially, we create the environment our children live in, and they respond to that environment, to put it very simply. We, they respond to our, the environment we create. We, uh, oftentimes, um, I hear that, you know, the kid was like, I don't understand what's going on with this kid, or blah, blah, blah. But if you start examining the environment, is it high stress? Who creates the high stress? Well, typically, it's parents. We, we come in, and I'm a parent, so I've done this myself is we're creating this environment that they have to live in. Now, that environment we're creating is usually an adult environment. I'm bringing my adult stress, my adult anxiety into the room, but my little four-year-old, their nervous system can't handle my adult environment. So we have to be more cognizant that we are creating their environment that they have to live in, which is like swimming in the little in the sea. Swimming in the sea. Steven Spears, my guest today from Cornerstone. Cornerstone offers... Uh, counseling services to people of any age, any family situation. And if some of these are hitting close to home and, and you just really don't know how you're supposed to do these things, maybe you lived in an environment where you weren't taught these things. You didn't learn from your parents how to have a good parenting style. There is help available. We're going to take a break. A tune from 1973. Were you alive? I was. Okay. Tell uh, no one. Drew was not, I'm sure. Drew is not alive. Oh, you missed it. You missed some great years. Drew, we have so much we can teach you, Stephen Spears and I. From Cornerstone, we're talking today about regulating your feelings, your emotions, your actions. And uh, we're trying to get ourselves into a space where we can deal with our children's problems. And you talk a lot about the environment. You had a quote there at the beginning about the children will kind of absorb the environment they're in. Uh, kind of like the, you know, everybody's worried about the train wreck out in uh, East Palestine, which I love to say they call it Palestine. I just get that, think that's so, just like here in Illinois, Versailles instead of Versailles. And, you know, <laughs> uh, so they, they have a strange pronunciation. You know, it's it's everybody should be concerned. Every parent out there should be concerned about what their children are breathing and the water they're drinking, et cetera. But there's probably some kids that, have ongoing personal experiences in East Palestine, Ohio, that (laughs) (laughs) pale in comparison to vinyl chloride being released, you know. So uh, I think every parent tries to do the best they can. They just don't know how. And part of that is because they get overwhelmed. They didn't have maybe a good role model that they could learn from. And so when, you know, without giving away any secrets of people you've counseled or anything like that, Stephen Spears, what are some common things that maybe parents don't even recognize that they're doing so that we can kind of 
call them out in a nice way over the radio as they're driving along going, gee whiz, I'm a perfect parent. I never do anything wrong. And now Stephen said, what? I do that all the time. Maybe I better change that behavior. We have to change our behavior if we're going to change our environment because so much of our environment is not just the physical place we live, but is the emotions we bring to that physical place. Children can thrive and be happy even in a homeless shelter. It takes a lot of work, but it could happen if they feel secure and safe there. Or they could be in a million-dollar mansion and have no security about them at all. So, again, the physical place is important. You've got to have food and a roof over your head and and some safety and security. You've got to have your basic needs met. Mm -hmm. But after that, so much of it is that emotional give and take between the parent. It, it is. And, and first of all, this is a non-judgmental uh, um, conversation about parenting and the home that we create. Because I'm a parent myself. I've made a lot of these mistakes. But when we think of our environment, we, we have to think about it. We've been pushed in our, you know, from years and years ago when I was a kid, things were a lot different. We didn't have all these pressures. So parents, we've kind of moved into this world where we're 100 miles an hour always on demand. And we're forgetting to take care of ourselves. And then that translates into stuff in the home that the kids pick on because we're not taking care of ourselves. And we've forgotten that because of how society is, I think, a lot of times. But the thing that I try to do and the thing I try to educate people on is we have to learn how we feel. We were having that conversation about the, the kids show. It's very basic. How do you feel? I find that so many people struggle with naming the feelings they have. I have anxiety. Okay, that, that's, that's fantastic that you identify that. But what are what some other feelings that you have? Yeah. yeah. Well, then you find out, you know, uh, maybe somebody's sad a lot. Maybe somebody is, when they go to work, they, have, they get their feelings hurt a lot because people aren't respecting boundaries and stuff. So there's an onslaught of the stuff that hits us every day. And we forget we have a right to take care of ourselves. And as parents, we need to step back and say, okay, am I moving at 100 miles at home in front of my kiddos? And we doing a million things at night that we don't sit down and, you know, calm, you know, create that environment of attachment and, and regulation. Even eating a meal together is so rare anymore. Uh, it used to be you sat down at the table and passed the food around and said blessing. And now everybody sits on the couch or in the recliner with their plate on their chest, even the kids. They don't even know what it's like to sit around a table. You're st- but you're at least having a meal together. You're all present. Mm-hmm. But even having a meal together, that is something that many children now have no concept of. The other day, ran into a four-year-old who had no concept of who Winnie the Pooh was. Now, I'm just blown back by that. I cannot imagine any world in which a four-year-old would not have at least heard of Winnie the Pooh. And, of course, the first thing it told me was, Probably not a lot of reading going on in that home because those beloved children's characters would certainly be something you think mom and pop would read to them. But, I mean, is is there a new Winnie the Pooh index? And if you haven't heard of Winnie the Pooh by the time you're a certain age, uh, your parents are lacking or something? Because <laughs> I, mean, I, I tend to be judgmental, you know. But you're right. I, it, it's It's not to say you're a good parent or a bad parent. You are a parent. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to do the best you can, and here are some tools that Cornerstone can give you to make it even better. Yeah, and that's what it is. I, parents are trying. They, they really are. And this is just a way to say, okay, think about taking care of yourself because yourself impacts your child's environment. Because you are important. 
you are needed. You are valued as a parent. Um, you have an incredible, credible job. I hate to use that word, but you have an incredible job because you're raising a life, right? So we have to take care of ourselves as parents so we can make that environment as best we can for the kiddos. So that self-care, that term I used before, is, is so very important. And once you can improve your self-care, understand where you're at with your state of regulation when, when you're in the home. Is it always up here, you know, where with all the anxiety, there's a lot of energy and nobody's, nobody's calm. And you know, that's happening all the time. You're seeing behaviors from the adults and the kiddos. Well, that's an opportunity to step back, take that deep breath and say, what's happening? Let me play devil's advocate. Because sure. self-care is very, very important, and a lot of people don't care, take care of themselves. But when does self-care become selfishness? For example, uh, you know, I come home, and I'm a busy mother, and I've got a dinner to make, and I've got some chores that I've got to do around the house. But instead, I decide to lock the bathroom door and take a bubble bath. And the kids are out there, fairly neglected. Not, nobody's interacting with them. Calgon's taking me away. I mean, at what point does my self-care become their lack of care? And is that hard for some parents to appreciate? Because I look back on my upbringing, and as an adult, I realize how, how very, very, very much my parents sacrificed a lot of things they would have rather been doing because they had kids. But as I snottily said to my mother about the age of 15, I didn't ask to be born, you know. <laughs> I remember those comments. Um, well, now, she, she didn't kill me at that moment, so here. she had some parenting skills. And you still have all your limbs, so it I went well. All, it yeah. went well. Um, all my teeth are still intact. <laughs> but, I mean, where where do you draw the line? Because, okay, oh, I've got to take care of myself, and then I'll be a better mother to my children. But, uh, you know, collapsing uh, every when they come home from school saying it's nap time for mommy, you know, entertain yourselves until seven. When daddy gets home, it's not really, that's self-care, but maybe not good for the entire family. But that's where balance comes in. There has to be a balance there because, you know, in the home we have responsibilities and duties in the home as parents and adults, and we have to meet those responsibilities and duties. Self-care doesn't mean self-absorption to the point that you're playing video games for three hours a night and the kiddos, depending from them, they're playing their video games for three hours. And, uh, you know, it's not what that means. Self-care means taking time when you need it to de-stress, to process things, to be healthy, me- healthy mentally and physically, you know, exercise. Um, like we talked about with breathing and self-care and grounding and those things like that, utilizing those things so you feel better. It's not about, hey, Calgon, I want to be taken away for three hours. And I want the kids can just do their own thing. It's about finding your place. It's about finding your healthy spot that you can interact with your kids. And then the environment, you know, you're in control of that environment now. And you're helping your children learn that process of self-care versus self-absorption versus, you know, becoming selfish. You're demonstrating your role modeling. And that's the, I think that's the key thing is you're role modeling, role modeling a lot of these things to your kiddos. In the olden days, it used to be moms on the block. Many of them did not work outside the home. They were full-time mothers. So, you know, maybe Monday afternoon at 2 was every, you know, every week somebody took a turn and they watched the kids while the other mothers did whatever. I don't care what it was. They just didn't have to do that, you know. Mm -hmm. They had some time to themselves. Um, We are getting harder and harder and harder to find time to ourselves. And part of that is 
Because of the wonderful communication device called the cell phone, we are instantaneously available to solve any problem at work. Uh, you know, the kids are calling you all the time. I've had parents say, well, my child has to have a cell phone. I, they don't, I don't want them to take their cell phone away from them at school. What if they need to get a hold of me? What could they possibly need from you in the middle of the day that a teacher could not, you know, advise them on? Um, this instantaneous reaction to each other, is that healthy? Or have cell phones made it a new kind of clinging? I, I, I'm struggling, to, but I find it odd. I used to go long periods of time without being able to communicate to my parents. And now kids instantaneously can call their parents, whether they want them to or not, Right in the middle of brain surgery, my phone can ding, and I know it's my kid. Mm-hmm. Do I pick it up? Do I continue with the brain surgery? What do I do? Well, in that case, finish the brain surgery. Let's go ahead and tighten that up a little bit. Let's get that tight, okay? Um, the question I would ask is, what what are you feeling? I mean, where where are you on your your state of regulation? Are you always on edge? Are you feeling that little anxiousness waiting for something to come in on that phone? Are you waiting for the text? Are you waiting for that call? Where are you at with that? You know, are, are you sitting in that fight or flight, that sympathetic part of your nervous system, hoping that thing goes off? Well, if you are, then that's something you may want to reconsider. How is that? Is it helping you or is it making you less productive? Is it making you more nervous and anxious? That's how I look at my cell phone. And I've gotten to the point now with me is I put it down. I don't look at it very much. But I was in that trap. I needed to have that phone with me constantly, constantly. got to have it. And once I realized, oh, my gosh, I'm wasting so much time on this thing. I'm just not really being productive, and it's not making me healthier or happier. So once I did that, I realized, hey, I, I feel better. I don't have that constant. Is somebody going to get a hold of me? So it's a question you ask yourself. Is this, how do I feel? You know, when is my kid contacting me constantly? How do I need to role model appropriate phone use? Because I grew up like you, but in the old days, we didn't have that. We had to make it on our own. Rotary dial. Yeah. Absolutely. If somebody needs help from Cornerstone, how do they get in touch with Cornerstone Therapy? Um, They can call us. We have a website that you can actually sign up for. I'm going to turn that to Drew. Drew, speak up. Hello. Yes, if you would like to reach out to Cornerstone uh, for inquiry about our services, you can reach us at 217-222-8254, or you can visit us online at cornerstone-quincy.org. And on our website, you are able to see videos of all of our therapists um, and schedule an appointment right there. Thank you very much.